Hey everybody, so this is Dylan Conroy, the host of the Ad Podcast, and I'm here with Rashad Tabakawala, the Chief Growth Officer for Publicis. Rashad, can you tell me a little bit more about your trajectory into your current role, um, just some of the key positions throughout history that prepared you for this role? First of all, thank you for inviting me. I have been at Publicis now, this is my 37th year. Probably uh, one thing that has prepared me is I've outlasted everybody else. <laughs> Longevity uh, is uh, sometimes the key, right? Yeah. What I've done is I started actually here in Chicago joining the Leo Burnett company. And I worked for the first decade as an account person at Leo Burnett, mm-hmm. working on a lot of accounts. Did to the direct marketing group. And when I was in the direct marketing group, I did a couple of years of that. I began and I built a case that we should do interactive marketing, mm-hmm. which most people wondered what I was talking about. <laughs> and it was 1994, 1993, and I was seeing things like AOL. I then proposed that we leave the Leo Burnett name behind a partner with a couple of young folks and take a majority stake in their company. And we launched uh, one of the few freestanding interactive agencies at that time called Giant Step. We left the building. It was majority owned by Leo Burnett. Uh, okay. The Leo Burnett employee it was called Giant Step. Helped grow that between, you know, 19, I would say 97, 8, right through the 99 crisis. Yeah, the um, dot-com crisis. Dot-com yeah. crash. We grew from the three of us to about 120 people wow. profitably, including through the crisis. That's right. Then I came back to the main mothership where I helped the team that launched the Obinet Media into Stockholm. I had by that time done a decade as an account guy, two years as a direct marketing, three years in interactive marketing. At Stockholm, I was both on the board of Stockholm, but I also set up the internet protocol unit of Stockholm called Stockholm IP. Over time, Stockholm merged with a company called MediaVest, and we became Stockholm right. MediaVest Group. Overall, as a group, we purchased by Publicis, which was in 2002. Yep. So 2002. I became part of Publicis. We created a unit called Publicis Group Media, which is Zenith and Stockholm Media Desk Group. And then we built the case and we purchased companies like Digitas and Razorfish. And we created a unit to hold them all called Viviki. And I became the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer of Viviki. For a year, was the chairman of both Digitas and Razorfish. I became the chief strategist of the publicist group. Then about a year, two years ago, I became the strategy and growth officer, and now I am the growth officer. Nice. So it's a 36-year <laughs> career where the unusual thing is I worked for a decade in what is known as the traditional creative agencies. I've spent a decade in digital, and I've spent a decade in media companies. I can see I've seen it all. Perspectives. I can see it from all three areas. Yeah. What does it mean to be the chief growth officer? Are you responsible for growing the business and bringing on new clients from a high level? Or? My role has changed even as the growth officer, but the big aspect of the growth officer is to find opportunities for the company to obviously grow, but mm-hmm. more importantly, find opportunities for our clients' business to grow. Gotcha. So a lot of it is working with clients to help them grow and figure out growth opportunities through either innovation, new strategies, also provide support for our client leaders, the people who work and support the client. So part of it is stimulating them with new thoughts, part of them is helping them with new business, part mm-hmm. of them is helping 
on different aspects. The idea basically is we will not grow unless our clients grow. Today, most of our clients are struggling with growth because yeah. of a new world of competition. Is a part of it also trying to figure out what these new disruptors are and how your clients can pivot to those models or at least take the, th- take the learnings? You have quoted Dollar Shave Club a lot and as a case study and a lot of the readings that I did on you. Um, is it looking a lot at the models of what have made those companies successful and how they've been able to eat so much market share from these traditional CPG companies and figuring out ways to combat that and think of that before Dollar Shave comes along and eats your lunch? Or? Yeah, well, what, what tends to basically happen is I've sort of defined it in new age clients and mm-hmm. what I would not call legacy clients, but established brands right. who are now mm-hmm. trying to figure out what next to do. Yeah. The key with established brands is what should they learn and what should they unlearn. And there are some things that we believed in which made a lot of sense. For instance, I wrote something called old scale, new scale. So legacy brands have had the opportunity of old scale and there's some advantages in old scale. And So you have scale of distribution. You have scale of spending so you can basically spend the competition competition. you have a scale of resources because you have a whole bunch of resources you have scale of manufacturing and economies of scale to manufacturing that's what i call old scale a lot of companies want and like old scale you then have new scale and new scale isn't old scale that is the scale of data the scale of networks and the scale of influence and the scale of talent and ideas i sort of refer to something like Kylie Jenner and something like Dollar Shave Club, who basically leveraged this new mobile social influencer ability to outsource world to make the new scale overcome the old scale. The ideal company would have old and new scale, but sometimes management or incentive systems or ways of doing things means even though you have very talented people who want to do new things, they're either incentivized to do old things or the new thing so cannibalizes the old, they don't do it. Part of it is what's the new mindset? How do you learn new things? How do you learn to unlearn? I've been working with startup company in the electronic motorcycle space, you know, kind of trying to become the Tesla of motorcycles. During the market research, the CEO of the company went around and talked to a lot of the legacy motorcycle companies, you know, Harley Davidson, BMW, to kind of find out if and what they're doing in the space. And it was interesting to learn that BMW had launched a pilot inside of Paris, you know, to try and launch an electronic electronic scooter, you know, in, inside of that market. And the biggest problem is their dealer networks. You know, they have this legacy dealer network and the people who were buying electronic scooters were not new customers. They were the existing BMW tour bike gas rider. What would happen is they would come in and they'd buy this electronic scooter for commuting purposes. It would totally serve their needs of what the big $35,000 commuter bike did at a $16,000 price point. And the thing doesn't need any maintenance for three years. Yeah, and so So. that's that's, that's exactly right. And that's one of the big, I mean, that's, even when you think someone is doing the same thing, they do it so differently. So you know, clearly when you look at Uber and Lyft, where broadly they probably want you not to buy a car, they want to reinvent transportation and reinvent logistics. Yeah. Uh, but if you think narrowly that they're replacing cabs, let's say that's a narrow definition. Sure. Mm-hmm. But so why don't cab companies do it? Because you, know, you see Arrow and Curve and other kinds of right. software. And the reason is because the cab company thinks about cars, drivers, and medallions. 
Uber does not have cars, drivers, or medallions. They basically think about algorithms, software, Platform. data, and networks. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and those are completely different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. One is asset light and data heavy. The other is asset heavy and data light. I think I read something where you talked on the uh, the topic of cannibalization. Some of these legacy brands, it may feel like BMW might be losing market share in the short term to replace customers with electronic scooter riders, but if that trend takes off, if they don't eat their own audience, they may get eaten by somebody else. What is they may get eaten by, and what tends to happen is you begin to have, this is not sort of a zero sum game, and you begin to learn that if you actually cannibalize, you could not only keep yourself relevant, but you could invent completely new areas and categories and become bigger. So what most people don't realize is what brought Apple back as a company was the iPod. Mm-hmm. So it was the iPod, especially when they made iTunes work on Windows and Mac. Yeah. The iPod brought them back as a company. Yeah. The iPhone cannibalized the iPod, and they put an iPod on every iPhone. And today, if you go to an Apple store, it's hard to find an iPod. Right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. But the iPhone created an entire world and made them the world's most valuable company. Sure. Yeah. Now, to a certain extent, when you actually think about it, and you know, the stock has taken a little bit of a hit, uh, at least in the last few days, is there's a question whether they can sell as many iPhones, whether they can charge any more for the iPhones, and has the iPhone peaked? Uh, they're going to no longer introduce or share iPhone numbers, so people are uh, concerned about that, it. Yeah. If you think about it, their whole stuff is, hey, look, we want to now think about the fact that we are in the membership, subscription, and content business. And so you see them buying things like Next Issue, you see them doing a whole bunches of stuff, and their idea is, hey, look, the people who have iPhones or iOS, they may be only 10% or less of the population uh, in, around the world. They're higher, obviously, in the United States. Right. But they're 50, 60, 70% of the margin and yeah. activity. Doesn't so, matter if they're the pipes for all the ebooks right. and all the content that so you watch. So, what tends to happen is they, they, and they're looking at their stores as community center mm-hmm. and they are thinking, rethinking their business. If at one stage they have to rethink their business that they are no longer in the iPhone business, that's perfectly fine. Sure. And you might say, will they not be in the iPhone business? Well, between the AirPod and the Apple Watch, they don't need to be in the iPhone business <laughs> in the future. As long as they're creating additional categories that eat other market share, yes. it doesn't really matter. And exactly. then they continue to have more and more ability to deliver the high margin business, which is the software and the media and everything else. Exactly. The same way. Same way it seems like, you know, Amazon, everybody jumped up and down about, about Amazon for years and years with low margins and not having profitability, but now it's the media business that's actually turning the tide, right? Right. Well, what really just... turned the tide was Amazon Web Services right, because right. that's where the profit and growth was and people began to realize they were at, at the heart of it, a software and logistics company that happened to also sell stuff. I'm going to pivot a little bit into agency culture now because you've written extensively on the topic and it seems like something that's really important in this current ecosystem where is headcount for the advertising business going down overall? 
what I see from that is it's just a, a miscategorization of where the jobs are going, right? Because, you know, Google and Facebook are categorized as an internet company and they're not categorized as an advertising company. So my guess is that more and more people are moving to platform. You wrote in an article on recent uh, LinkedIn recently and you quoted your CEO, Arthur Sadoon. Am I yes. pronouncing that right? In the past, talent worked for companies, but now companies work for talent. Um, what does that mean at Publicis today? One of the key often comments about companies that are the service businesses like the agency business, mm-hmm. our company goes up and down the elevator. We tend not to have manufacturing centers. We don't tend to have brands. We have brands, but we don't have like you know, brand names like Gillette or things like that. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in effect, at almost all of our costs are basically people in real estate. It's basically, and many companies have that. So what tends to happen is what differentiates us are, is our people. And there is a benefit because, because we don't have some of those legacy things. By retraining and changing our people, we can actually adapt to the new world. A lot of people have called us dinosaurs, and I call ourselves cockroaches. Because we <laughs> around and figure out what to do. And survive. And in 2006, we had less than 5% of our business was digital. And today, obviously, if you can measure it, everything digital has become digital. Right. But 58% of our revenue is digital, wow. right, in 10 years. It's a big so flip. we have reinvented our entire business, and the way we reinvent it is this through talent. And increasingly, if we want to attract talent, we're going to basically have to find ways to get them, which is what that meant, which is we have to enable them to achieve their goals. And some of those goals are financial goals, others are goals of purpose and meaning, other goals are skill development and experiences. What we have understood from talent is they want to opportunities to gain knowledge, they want opportunities to gain opportunities, and they want <laughs> opportunities to connect with other people. Some of what we're doing is to enable that, is what that particular statement means. We will only win if we can attract a disproportionate share of talent. And in today's world, when you begin to have to compete with not just other agencies, but as you basically said, clients, platforms like Google and Facebook, technology consultants like an Accenture Uh, uh, and Deloitte, we have to make sure that we recognize that we need to attract people and show them how we're different. What is different about us versus almost everyone else, we are special in our own special way. Now, if you're a particular individual, you will say, I am deeply interested in writing software and code, and therefore I want to work for a technology company, and therefore you end up working, you work at one of the platforms, or Adobe or something like that. If you want to be a consultant and only a consultant, you probably will end up, if you're not at McKinsey or something, you'll end up at Accenture. But if you want to be at the confluence of technology, creativity, culture, and business, we're the place. Sure. And we are racing to get there through our acquisitions of companies like Sapient. We already had culture, creativity, business, but we didn't have technology services as much, which we have with Sapient. Similarly, an Accenture is trying to buy into agency spaces. Right. right. So everyone is coming to it from a different place. We at least know what it is like to work in creative cultures. And at least it's our belief that eventually the differentiation will be the creativity. And creativity doesn't necessarily mean it's just a piece of film, it can be, but it is business model ideas, ways to influence people ideas, it's way to connect the dots ideas, because in effect, the most successful companies are this combination of creative and technology and business. And you talked about Adobe, Adobe is one of those. Sure. If you sort of think about it, Pixar, right, mm-hmm. is another one. And so our basic belief is we wanna do that, uh, we wanna have the ability to attract people who do that, and that's what that comment is. 
you know, if you're going to be an extreme software writer, it may not come to us. But if you want a confluence of those, you would. You want to be able to change it up. Yeah, you, you bring up, that kind of leads me to another topic that has been kind of hot in the industry right now, especially after the last uh, ANA Masters down in Florida. It seemed like the topic that was kind of the key headline that came out of that was uh, the in-house agency at brands. Like they're getting bigger and bigger and more and more brands are doing it. I've had conversations with a host of CMOs for this podcast. Biggest fear that I hear from CMOs that are thinking about creating an in-house agency or thinking about one or the other option is that the best creatives in the space don't want to want to, they don't want to work on one account. They don't want to work on just one single concept or idea. They want the opportunity to be challenged creatively and have exposure to multiple different issues to solve from a creative standpoint. There is this trend of people taking some stuff in-house and some take a lot in-house and some take a little in-house. There is a justifiable reason to do that and it's not necessarily cost containment, which is one possible element. Because of today's technologies, there are some things that you can do direct to the consumer. You also want to make sure that you are on top of your data that you own your data, nobody comes in between. You want to basically, especially when there are new areas, you want to be on top of it so you as an organization learn. So even if you decide to select a partner, how do you select a partner? So there are a lot of good reasons to take some part of it in-house. Whether massive swaths of it will be taken in-house, I don't know because it depends on the type of company. If you are a brand direct company, you may have a lot of it in-house, but then you work with agencies that are working direct-to-consumer who help brands that are direct-to-consumer right. coming up with everything from packaging to logo design to positioning of a brand if you're one of these larger companies even your brand direct business is only going to be five or ten percent you're going to require agencies think for agencies is we've got to basically remember how do we regain the trust of our clients and how do we make sure that we remain relevant and that whatever additional cost, if we have an additional cost, can be justified. It's not just because we're charging an additional cost. The struggle that I think possibly that clients will have, I'm not sure, but it'll depend on different categories that they will have, are three. One is, to your point, whether they can attract and retain the right talent. Some of these talent, and it's not just the creative people, but it's a lot of other people, want to basically have the ability to see and learn from different experiences. What happens is, even if you're a very large company, most companies are in actually one field. So even something like a P&G, which is very big and very great, 90% of their products are about dirt removal. Yeah. <laughs> right? They're great products, but sure. 90% of them are dirt removal. You boil it down, right? And so what tends to basically happen is people say, I don't want to spend my entire life in a dirt removal company. Or, right? And so that's one of the key things. Some people want to live in Cincinnati because it's affordable, they like the country, they like the city, they like what it is. Other people say, no, we don't want to work in Cincinnati, we want to work in New York or San Francisco, Austin or Chicago. The reality of it is, if you're in a world where you are fighting for talent, no client can basically have a model where they take everything in-house and then expect to get the world's best talent in the changing world. One of the reasons why Sears had its problems is they went and located themselves 45 miles out of Chicago in the wheat fields where they couldn't get young people. If you now sort of think about it, Kraft and McDonald's, one of the reasons they moved into the city of Chicago 
is that's how they can get the type of talent they need for tomorrow. So in this talent war, you want to have different places. If the fact that Amazon has to go to three places, <laughs> right, for a company to say, and Amazon has the widest variety of products and services, but have to go all over to get this sort of talent and has huge outside of members tells me that it isn't one thing. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot sense. of things. Yeah, no, that's really, I have heard and read a lot about Marcel, the uh, AI, I believe it's kind of an AI concierge, if that's the right word for it, that you guys have developed at Pulisys. What was kind of the big headline when I first started hearing about it was that you guys were bowing out of <clears throat> bowing out of can for a season or for one award cycle in order to make that investment in the platform and the most recent thing that i read is you guys are actually integrating can into the platform itself um, which was super interesting so kind of full circle coming back to uh, the original headline can you tell me more about marcel and what it means to the industry because i do i have seen pitches recently or heard about pitches where that was a key decision in choosing Pulisys and the uh, outcome of the pitch. So the, at the heart of Marcel is what the, the quote that you heard from our leader, which is basically in the past, talent work for companies and today companies work for talent. There are four goals for Marcel, which is a, how does talent connect to other talent? The other is, second is how does talent connect to knowledge? So for instance, the inclusion of the can stuff is how do we see the best work in the world ah, right yeah. the third is how do you make talent's life easier so things like email time cards how do you make that seamless and easy and but most importantly is how do i connect to opportunities which is why can't I, given the right legal constraints of competitive conflict and what you work on and where you are why can't we basically have a brief that is pre-selected and given to 25 different people around the world? Why does it have to be just one group of people? That is both good in the fact that now it's an advantage, which is a client can only have one team, we can have 25, <laughs> this is an in-housing team. But yeah. as importantly for the talent, they get to work on different things and they can work in different countries. So we had a, an, an example where an Oscar commercial, Walmart, right, was developed by a team in a country that never had a Walmart, okay? That's crazy. Just through sharing of briefs, etc. How do I basically get to knowledge? How do I connect to talent? How do I make my life easier? How do I connect to opportunities? That's what's basically doing it. And as a result of it, clients are interested because in effect, it means that we can turbocharge our company and we can truly deliver what we call the power of one. Again, with the right competitive constraints and everything else, the power of the whole group Sure. Client, yeah, which, is, which is particularly interesting. You know, we are partnering with companies like Microsoft, so we're not developing it all ourselves. Yeah, I saw that so you guys, got, the, a lot of the technology right. is backed so, so by we, people we, who and so the, and, you know, as they as you are, and they've got their, yeah. their own AI, etc. So we're working together with them. So the process where we are today is we have finished the beta, we learned what works and what doesn't work, and we will now, in the course of next year, as our plan, start launching it. We'll probably have pilot cities where the full-fledged product will start coming out and then this first select them. And the idea is to get it to a large part of our company by the end of 2019. It's interesting because you talked a lot about retaining and keeping top talent and uh, another kind of byproduct of launching this podcast. Is I'm on a quest to build the world's greatest sales culture. You know, that's my kind of personal yes. mantra and what drives me um, inside of the media industry. 
being an individual contributor at media companies throughout my career, I kind of saw areas where I thought maybe I could do things differently and build a culture that is uh, something that would keep the best sales guys because the best sales guys are usually ones that are the most approached by the competitive set once you get them to a certain place, you know, someone else just comes in and doubles their salary and steals them off your roster. Focused a lot on really the automation piece where, you know, you don't bog sales guys down building out CRM reports and all that data is valuable, but there's so much technology out there today, even from a sales operations perspective, where you can automate that entire process. You know, leads go in automatically when you email, call logs. Absolutely. And what happens is there's a when I was growing up in India, I read a, in those days, it was like you had this book of the month club. They would give away premiums if you signed up in the book of the month club. And one of the premiums was the story of civilization, Abdul and Ariel Tarak, which had uh. 12 books. So they would all give you lots of books so you thought you had a value. Over the years, I read most of those books. And one of the, we had a summary, which is called the lessons of history. And one of the lessons of history that every advance in technology places a premium on ability superior ability. So if you think about technology as a lever and talent as talent, then the more powerful the lever, the more a particular talented person can do. And so what tends to happen is one of the reasons you begin to have somewhat of an inequal society in some cases is today, if you are a great professor with world-class technology, the world can be your classroom. Therefore, if you're a moderate professor, why should anybody care? Uh-huh. And you're seeing that because of internet technology, you can access the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, or whatever, yeah. uh, the Washington Post. Do you really need your local newspaper? In fact, what does your local newspaper do that's unique? Maybe sports, yeah. maybe local coverage. Local but does that make a local newspaper? Yeah. So now you're beginning to see technology has placed a premium on superior quality, which comes from superior talent, which is why the New York Times is not failing, despite what our president says, right? Or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times. But on the other hand, a Time magazine is no longer differentiated, a Fortune magazine is no longer differentiated, and so they're being sold. New York Times is especially interesting. They acquired my boss's last company, Hello Society, which was an influencer marketing agency that started in the Pinterest world. So it seems like New York Times is not just thinking about editorial, but they're thinking about the full stack. You know, they're, they're looking at about, the full stack, and their yeah. T-Studio is yeah. one of the fastest growing parts of their yeah. company. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it is basically a both an enabler and a competitor to agencies, as well as in-house. If yeah. they're in-house, for outhouse. <laughs> In an article, you, you had recently said that Publicis needs to move from a holding company to a platform. Can you tell me a little bit more what that means? So we, we've been on a, in a sort of a journey. So a holding company was really sort of some central financial back office unit that held or oversaw different brands. Right. And you begin to have brands like you know, like a Digitas or uh-huh. a Zenith or a Neopinet. But increasingly in the digital world, clients are asking for a couple of things. One is they don't want duplication. So their whole stuff is I don't want I don't understand why four of your brands are saying they do the same thing. I'm paying them. <laughs> no specialty. Right, yeah. right. But the other is things are now merging into each other, so they want unification. Uh-huh. So we went from what was a holding company to a connecting company. 
So nice. we would connect the dots. But increasingly what we want to be is we want to be enabling our clients. So we want to basically be a platform. And one of the key things in a platform type of company is it brings buyers and sellers together. And over time, in some cases, we start to begin to have reduced costs of distribution, reduced costs of acquisition, et cetera. So as a broader company, you reduce your cost of acquisition because you can share clients. You reduce your client's cost by removing sort of friction. You basically have the ability to have lots of different people to plug into your system because in effect, no one company can do it all. So you can partner with other companies to deliver what the client solution is. Sure. So those are some of the things that we're talking about. Seems like a big trend today is the agency that is kind of named and service as just one client through like things like Marcel and moving to this more platform model. Do you think that's going to be kind of the trend ongoing? There will not be conflict shops anymore because almost every brand is going to get its own agency based on the fact that you can crowdsource this team through technology, through the Marcel of technology, where you can literally bring together a worldwide global team based on best practices and kind of using technology to kind of crowdsource exactly who the right people are to form together and to create this independent unit? It, it is, but but because a world is complicated mm -hmm. and very different and clients uh, are both of different sizes, but each are unique and complicated and different in their own way. Some people want things like this, other people don't. Yeah. Some people want some of it, but they don't want other parts <laughs> of it. The reality of it is that if you had 100 agencies which are not connected through some sort of platform, you basically have a nightmare in costs, right? Because in effect, you don't want to be so specific to a client the talent that says this is no different than the in-house agency. Sure, yeah, that's true. It's just kind of modeling the in-house agency right. out of so the client. So what Marcel will allow you to do is even if you're working on one of these, you can work on other things that's that cool. are not competitive. Is it kind of like some of the Google-type companies where they say, hey, you know, work on the core project and then take 25% of your time and yeah, passion and, and, on and, a pa and, passion and, you know, project? And exactly. Those are yeah. all those things that we're sort of looking at. What we do now is even a company like let's say Ford, uh -huh. which had a long-standing and deep relationship with WPP. Right. If you look at what their new model is, their new model has three companies and not one. They have kept WPP for a lot of different things. They've taken a lot of what is considered like the glamorous things like creative and right. given it to an optical combination, yeah. BBDO. But they've also brought in Biden and Kennedy, right? Yeah. So they've got BBDO, Widen, and WPP. <laughs> so, you know, in effect, people are beginning to realize once you're large, you need different options. What you want is, and no client does not use even today like a multitude of companies. Yes, people are like optimizing. Sure. And clients are fighting, hey, I got 2,000 agencies, I got to come down to it. But they don't go from 2,000 to one yeah. or from 200 to one. They go usually from 200 to 15, of which five may be the dominant so it reminds me a little bit, I heard uh, I heard about process that Fiat Chrysler puts their agencies through and it's unique only to the creative side where they've got core agencies for media and PR and some of the traditional, you know, the things that need to be kind of serviced and housed in one place. But every single campaign or model launch, they jump ball the creative between six agencies that are not attached through the same holding company. And the idea, it 
seems there is that seems like a horrible way to have to respond to the business from the agency side, but at the end of the day, they're trying to find the best ideas, so they want a diversity in ideas. Yeah, so I mean, they are trying to find the best ideas, and again, every client has its own thing that works for them, and we have to basically align with be relevant to each client in their own way. There are some things that people have to eventually understand, which is what we are very aware of, that at the bottom of all of this are people. At some particular stage, the best people will not work if they do not feel well-paid, trusted, and respected. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay? Yeah. I can basically, if I, let's say I had some talent, which I don't, but let's say I had some talent, <laughs> and I was jump balled every few minutes. Right. At some particular stage, let's say, what the chef. Yeah, you're going to give right? up. Who you have left are sort of second-rate people uh, jump balling. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay? Yeah. Uh -huh. Because at some particular stuff, if something is demeaning, nobody good is going to work on something that's demeaning. That's yeah. what I... I think people are forgetting that if you believe, and that's one of my underlying basic beliefs, yeah. that talent is scarce and capital is plenty. Sure. But if you believe the opposite, keep going, right. which is capital is scarce and talent is plenty. What we have failed to do is sometimes convince clients that we're differentiated enough and talented enough to worth being a premium price for. That's yeah. our problem, which sure. we have to work through. The other, in these jump ball things is in the future, I don't know how you can think of an idea separate from the delivery. And if you don't know how things get delivered, how you can think of the idea, That's right? Because yeah. you can think of an idea, but it's not deliverable, feasible, cost-effective, <laughs> or manageable, right? Yeah. And some of these increasingly ideas are no longer quote-unquote ideas like a piece of film yeah. or like a concept. It is an experience, right? Right? Because like our chief strategy officer now and our chief creative officer, Nick Law, they basically say brands are experiences and experiences are brands. Yeah. And how do you create an experience where you think of an experience but you can't create it? You know, in effect, we're doing this in person in a fantastic room you know, filled with cigar smoke. <laughs> smoking at discovery time. Yeah. And we're doing this like this and you you found over time that you get better results. Sure. Obviously, it's cigar-based rooms. Yeah. You could call me and say, let's just imagine we would be cigar fish. I don't think it would be the same thing. And that's the difference between imagination and reality. Right. It gives a little bit of context to the, uh, I think I read another quote from you that talked a little bit about the idea of agencies are sick and tired of being babysitters and, or not agencies, but brands are really sick and tired of kind of being arbitrators of their agencies, you know, the yes. different agencies that so exist. So they're very clear yep. at our CDO, a lot of our CDO clients, including uh, the CFO of PNG has basically said, I don't want to see all your complexity, hide <laughs> it from me. I don't need all that shit. And when they see complexity, they see three key things. Yep. They see friction. Friction means heat and slowness and cost. And what they don't have any time for these days is increased cost, slowness. Everyone basically says, I want it better, faster, cheaper. And if you're bringing me a whole bunch of complex stuff, it surely isn't going to be faster, better, cheaper. <laughs> so their stuff is like, get the hell out of it. We're not paying any of this, which is what we're all reacting to. So I read a, another quote from you, and this is kind of around data meeting storytelling. You said that good stories will often be good spreadsheets, but a great story and a great spreadsheet combined are unbeatable. Can you tell me a little bit more about why data-driven storytelling is so important? 
my undergrad, I've always wanted to be a writer, but my undergraduate degree is in advanced mathematics. Uh -huh. And then I went to the University of Chicago Business School, which is as quantitative a business school as you can possibly get. I am not a person who is anti-technology, anti-data, or anti-math. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. It's woven into your DNA. It's woven into DNA. If you sort of think about the value of many of the companies you see today, whether it is Facebook, whether you see it at Google, or Adobe's valuation is in part not only driven by, you know, Adobe really became a different type of company in one of two ways. One going from package software to cloud-based sure. subscriptions. Yep. But the other is where they basically went from being creative to basically trying to change the world through digital experiences. And that meant their big first head-scratching acquisition was Omnichurch. Okay. Which is a data company, yeah, and they so. eat their own dog food, as you know. You work yeah, for them, for sure. and they basically look at all the numbers, and and that helps them ever. basically also figure out how everything works. <laughs> yeah. And then over time, they you know added additional companies, including almost anything with the, with M in it. Sure. Gento, Marketo, whatever they right? And but but in effect, if you think about it, the underlying part of it, it, it is that, but it's actually fueling creativity right and if you and so my whole basic belief is in today's world you cannot not understand technology and data but it's like electricity at some point you don't differentiate through electricity you dif differentiate through lighting through fixtures yeah. through mood and that's creativity and it's it's pretty amazing how adobe which is a technology company like they have an ai tool as well it's called uh sensei yes. is the name of theirs and, and and everything they're trying to do this whole idea of mapping and seamless mapping of stuff is mm -hmm. how do we create more skills yep. technology allows creativity to basically move forward with mm -hmm. and to a great extent the way i look at it is if you look at the old world let's suppose someone had a certain number of colors and they were a very good artist. And now you give them additional colors to paint with. They could do even better. And so they work hand in hand. And Ed Catmull of Pixar basically said, it's not necessarily our technology that spurs creativity, that because now we can make a piece of hair bob like a real thing, <laughs> right? Or that somebody had an idea for which we basically created the technology. Both of them work together. Sure. The creative informs the technology. The technology informs the creativity. And so that basically said, we are human beings, and because we're human beings, we tend to listen to stories more than we listen to facts. Uh, if that was not true, watch what happened with Brexit in the United States election. Right, it right. was emotion trumped uh -huh. facts. So when people tell me that we're computing machines, I say bullshit. We choose <laughs> with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did. But imagine if you had both, and companies like Adobe, companies like Pixar, companies are doing that, and that's what that was about. At Adobe's conference each year, they have a conference called Adobe Max, and it's the largest gathering of creative people in the world, the agency world and media companies. They have about 18,000 creatives in Los Angeles uh, this last year, and they have this uh, portion of their keynote called Sneaks, where they release kind of sneak peeks at what's coming down the Adobe product pipeline. And there's always technology that takes things that used to take entire people or entire departments or entire days of work using the tools, they show how it can be done in a second, right, yes. with technology. 
and you see a portion of the room that is maybe the younger set that kind of look at that and they're oh, ooh ah and they're thinking of it from the perspective of my god I'm going to be able to do my job so much faster now because of this new technology and then you've got another side of the room that's maybe you know a little bit older that kind of looks at it and you can they're more concerned that it's going to eliminate their job maybe or it's going to take away from their core skill set it seems that some of this stuff is uh, frightening, but at the same time, it's what's really... Automation isn't really looking to take away jobs. It's looking to just make us do our jobs more effectively. Yes, but, what, what, but, but there are two things that it does do, and that's what we have to be very careful about, which is one of the reasons why we sometimes have the election results we do. There are people who used to do what machines now do. Their stuff is, I've just lost my job. Both society, government, and companies don't retrain these people to learn new skills. And this is not simply like going from agriculture to manufacturing. Give me an idea. You, part of the reason, as you mentioned, that you're doing this podcast is you want to learn more about the technology right. that you are selling sure. to your client. Mm -hmm. But what tended to basically happen is you had to invest time and effort to yeah, learn. Exactly. Right? Yep. It wasn't like you just can do it. No. When all these new things came out, I had no idea. I mean, I don't, like, how do I use and leverage social media? How do I do all of these things? I could have said this is stupid stuff. Who wants to see what people are eating? <laughs> but my whole stuff is, oh shit, I gotta learn how to figure this out. Yeah. And my company let me invest time and effort, and so I got retrained mm -hmm. in order for me to be somewhat relevant at an older age to figure out all of these things. I can do a spot television buy, which most people can't do. Right. That can now be done by machines. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. But because I know what these things are, I can bring all my years of experience about marketing and segmentation and storytelling and use these platforms. But in that process, I had to learn. What we have to understand is technology takes away certain jobs, but gives birth to others. But it's not necessarily the people who lose jobs that get those other jobs. Right, right, and that that's is true. the societal challenge, is how do you then retrain or find ways from these people to go to the other. And current worry in society is that there'll be a lag and you'll basically have rebellion against <laughs> the new world order. Sure. Because let me tell you, you can tell me about this wonderful, beautiful world, but if I don't have a job and I can't put food on my table, yeah, I'm basically a bringing a pitchfork and I'm coming at you. <laughs> you know, you gave an example of like how Instagram was a you know 40 person company yeah. and it displaced a 70,000 person company. And, 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 Kodak, there, are some, and, and there are some other big issues with that. Because one of the others besides the 70, because the, the 40 people became very, very rich, yeah. but 70,000 middle class jobs disappeared. But interestingly, all of us broadly benefited from Instagram more than we may have benefited from Kodak. Somewhere along, 70,000 jobs, to lose. someone had to lose, yeah. and maybe those 70,000 people eventually reinvented themselves in different ways. And many more new careers were born with Instagram, including Kylie Jenner, whose right. fame allowed her to launch <laughs> Jenner Cosmetics, right? Sure, yeah. But those are certain things that we have to be worried about because, you know, in effect, there is now a unique concentration of wealth that is taking place because of the network and data effects. Yeah. So if you sort of think about it, and there's this winner-take-all, and most recently there has been this both frontlash and backlash about Amazon's decision, so they ended up going to the places that everybody would tell you the, the obvious two choices. Right, right. So they went and spoke to 270 people, did this entire thing, and ended up exactly... It was, it was a big they, PR stunt, right? Right. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was... They're a smart company. They're sort of PR stunt. But they learned a lot. But at the end of this, there's sort of a backlash. 
you have a trillion dollar valuation company taking money from cities who barely have money to do infrastructure right. to fund themselves to end up leaving 275 <laughs> people dejected to go to exactly where you wanted to. What the hell were you thinking? Yeah, yeah. Everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon right. to try and dangle the carrot. To right. And so at some yeah. stage, many of these companies, I think the one thing that we all have to recognize, and all of us as individuals who are who are sometimes lucky to be successful. Sure. Companies of every size, but definitely that these large companies. Have you thought about what it feels like not to be you and to look at it from an outside perspective? Yeah. As we speak today, there's been this massive article in the New York Times about Facebook. You sometimes wonder, like, what were they thinking? <laughs> Do they understand their own platform? Sure. And you begin to realize that these are very good people, but they just lost the plot because they were living in their own like bubble. World, they're not. Right? And interestingly, they have created a world of filters and bubbles, <laughs> and they themselves were in filter and bubble. It's kind of interesting that yeah. their own, they're being hung up on their own fatal sure, whatever sure. it's called. You've been a publicist for quite a while and worked at a lot of different agencies. And I imagine over the years, a lot of sales guys like myself have tried to get your attention and try and break through and get a meeting or maybe try and get their services in front of you. What makes a really good business development person who has to call on the holding company agency system? It's been many, many years since I controlled any budgets or did anything that anybody wanted to call on me. So I'm going <laughs> to give you sort of more like what I'm seeing and some historic knowledge sure. that may not be as sort of relevant. There are a few things. The, the, the first is there are some things that we need to do better. My basic belief is if you want to have a relationship, it's got to be two ways. It's got to be win-win. And if... I go out of my way to make it very difficult to meet with me. At some particular stage, the best ideas and the best people will go and talk to someone else. Because in this buyer-seller thing, my stuff is if anybody thinks that they're like super powerful, mm -hmm. the other person gets so pissed off that they, <laughs> they treat you well, but they may be spitting in your soup. Right, right. right. <laughs> so there are some things that we do, which is we have to recognize, A, that people who are on the sales side, the business development people, have quotas, have goals, have budgets, have livelihoods, and don't want to waste their time. So don't waste their time. If you see them, see them at the right times. Sure, don't keep yeah. rescheduling stuff. Listen to them. Pay attention. All of that. So there are lots of stuff we have to do. Yeah. So make no mistake. But there are things that benefit us from your side, yep. which is a for people to have done their homework. Like, you know, you read about the stuff, so these questions, yeah. like, you could have said, like, who the hell are you? And, you're <laughs> that, right? and I would say, I don't know who I am. Right, but, right. But, but, but what tends to happen is to have done your homework, so in effect that, that the, the time is sort of relevant, which yep. is number one. Number two is to solve a problem that we are trying to solve, mostly for our clients, right, or for ourselves. Sure. But you've done your homework, which allows you to be relevant, to solve a problem that my client is trying to do or I'm trying to basically solve make it easy for me to buy. And sometimes we forget that, which yeah. is make it relevant, make it simple. I'm not saying make it relevant, make it relevant, make it simple, solve a problem. Oh, uh, that seems and that easy. seems to be basically the, 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 yeah. key, the key thing. And also I think recognize and the best people recognize you are going to eventually, you're not doing a series of transactions, but you're basically doing a relationship in which some transactions will go one way and some transactions sure. will go the other way. Yeah, that's fair. But what eventually happens, I do believe, most business development people rarely sell a product so good that it sells itself. And those tend to be self-serve, yeah. like Google AdWords. Right, right. You don't need, <laughs> right. You don't need a sales rep you, you necessarily. Need a sales, yeah. right? So you tend to basically 
differentiate on something more than the product. Right. And that is what business development people do. Manage to find a way, make us rethink up your product, that you are the best solution for my client. You make my life easier and I want to work with you. In another one of your articles, you talked about the idea of being overly busy, especially senior management. You said, get out of your inbox and your to-do list. They are colonizing your mind, destroying your creativity, and slowly corroding your relevance. I thought that was a pretty powerful quote. What advice do you give to executives on how to be more purposeful about their work? There are a few. The first and most important is invest at least one hour a day in learning. So one of the things I've basically, and I do it myself. Yeah. So every day I spend at least an hour learning. Some days I, because of jet lag, flights, it may not happen, but I try to make sure that at the end of a week, I've spent at least seven hours learning something new. And it could be everything from learning about something, interacting with an app, looking at a platform, meeting new people who I've never met before, talking about things I've never heard of before. And it doesn't need it going to a new restaurant or yeah. taking a different way home. I think I said, uh, I think I saw somewhere where you make it a point to get to shows and to yeah. art exhibits. Art exhibits are like just everything that you want to do. So one is you have to invest in yourself and invest in learning uh, because that is a definite way to at least make sure that seven hours a day are not colonized by <laughs> your work, your family, and other things that are very important. Sure. Uh, so that's number one. The second thing is I don't understand why people don't delegate I have a system when I was running things. I built a relationship with and attracted very good talent. Yep. And the deal simply was that the talent would run the show. And I was there to help them. Their only thing that they had to tell me is when they were getting to a DEFCON orange <laughs> on a situation. So they needed, before they it needed gets out to of come to me and say, we're getting to DEFCON Orange. And I'd say, okay, what's your solution for DEFCON Orange? And I wouldn't say panic and say, why did it get to DEFCON Orange? Mm -hmm. and, and don't tell me a DEFCON Yellow. You should be able to <laughs> DEFCON Orange you want to tell me, right? You can tell me a DEFCON Yellow if you want, but DEFCON Orange. And then tell me what the solution is. And if I can help you better with the solution, I will. But then if DEFCON Orange goes to DEFCON Red, I can help you with DEFCON Red because I couldn't help you with DEFCON Orange. <laughs> so DEFCON Red is our problem together, sure, right? Yeah. So the whole idea of delegating means you let other people do the work, and you, but you delegate while being very accessible. While I delegate that, that doesn't mean you have to only see me at DEFCON Orange. You can see me anytime you want. But more importantly, you can see me with two kinds of things. You suck, which is me, I suck. <laughs> Oh, you got a problem and you don't know what to do about it, or you're sensing a problem. You want to be very approachable and open. And as a result, then what happens is your talent does all the work. But they think you're really valuable because A, you let them shine, you let them do all the work, but you're always there, you have their back. Often what people believe is people believe they're irreplaceable, especially as they get more senior. My stuff is, that's stupid. You're a horrible manager. Okay, if that's what you are. Right. So it's a combination of investing in time and delegating that allows you to free up stuff. 
Keelan Foursquare pretty well. So I also see that you tend to invest time in your physical fitness. Yes. It seems like you get to a gym, whether you're here in Chicago, New York, or traveling. How important is that for your mindset to, you know, get the body moving and, and kind of keep uh, that health element uh, so in addition it, to the learning and everything else? Yeah. So what tends to basically happen is uh, one of the things that has happened over time, because I travel so much around the world, and also because I love beer and I love <laughs> food, yep. right? What I began to realize is that spending you know 40 minutes a day, as many days as possible, either swimming or running or weights or whatever, depending on where I am, does a couple of things. The first thing that it basically does is it tells my body this is morning, wherever I am in the world. Nice, right? that's smart, that's uh, really cool. Is, which, is, which is important. Second is it's a amazing way of like when I'm doing one of these things is to not only think but more importantly do all the horrible things that I would actually do to a person I get that out in my run or whatever it is <laughs> because you know it's a it's a uh, stress removal right. thing. Yeah. So what I tend to basically do is just before I run I check my overnight email at which stage I want to like hit somebody and then I go do what I need to basically do. That's Come, perfect. And I think about solutions yeah. besides hitting them because That's, that won't work. I yeah, won't have yeah. a job. Right? <laughs> so I sort of, sort of got that, right? And, but as important, so there's a physical well-being to it which allows me to, in my travel, because I get to great restaurants, I like having beers, all of that kind of stuff. You have to have something to offset that yeah. shit. But it's also a stress removable thing and a way to sort of think. But as importantly, it for me, it's the discipline that says there are only two or three things I can control in my life. Yeah. I can control that one hour of investing in learning. I can control the 40 minutes of exercise. What I've done is I fed my body and I fed my mind. That's great. And so the rest of the day, whatever happens, it's not a horrible day. That's huge. No, and I love the idea when I was younger in my career, I was very combative. You know, I was always a good producer. I was always the top sales guy at whatever company I, that I was at. But I tended to react when it, when something happened when something went wrong i tend to react and start a war with people internally never with clients but yeah. always with but, people but, but internally these, these are ways that you basically so what you, what, you, what i do is i tend to do the and i have a sort of a routine so the first hour which i'm investing in my learning or doing whatever i do i do that after i get up and have coffee nice. but without looking at the world outside mm -hmm. after i do that then i look at my overnight email and other work stuff, then I get worked up nice about it and then I go, right? But if I did the email first before I did that, I get yeah. so worked up, everything would be wrong in order. And then I get directly to the work work. Yeah. What basically happens is you have to have the discipline of recognizing however important you are in the work world, you're basically a tool. <laughs> sure. So yeah. you're always number two to your company. Okay. You can only be number one to your family and to yourself. Yeah. So don't think otherwise that's a good point now i love how deliberate you are about thinking about attacking each day and kind of optimizing for not only a great way to work but just to be happy it sounds like yeah you know? absolutely so that's really cool
my business is in the influencer marketing space. And in another article, you said that uh, influencer marketing will transform with time. You'll be able to identify which individuals are likely to be influential and you can collaborate them with, with them, say five of them, and you can predict what's going to appeal to them. That's a really interesting thinking about influencer marketing, about the kind of the future of what might be possible is like, not only can a brand, you know, identify influencers and work with them, but first thing is you can spot people that are going to be influential before they even know they're going to be influential themselves. And the second thing is you can predict on how to interact with them to essentially create a relationship with them that's valuable for your clients. That sounds like really an interesting future in which the industry could head in. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about yeah, so, how you see that happening? So, you know, it, uh, there are a few this, this, this morning, you know, so people say, okay, use all the social media and like, you know, we connected in different ways. Like, yep. I, I've had people who've connected, like one of the reasons I use Swarm is part of it is just, it's a habit and it tells me where I was. Right, right. But part of it is there are other people in different cities who use it who will say, hey, you're here, let's go have a drink. Yep. Right, mm -hmm. or let's meet. So it's a very interesting, like a bat signal. <laughs> right? sort of reverse, digital breadcrumbs digital, is what I digital, call it. Reverse, mm -hmm. that gentleman reached out to me who, is, who used to work at Husay yep. um, uh -huh. and said, hey, I've got some new thoughts and ideas. Can I meet with you for LinkedIn? So I said, okay, this is the time I'm available but I'm working this morning from home, uh, from my home office, can you come there? This is at five, so we had a coffee. And yep. his stuff is you've been talking a lot about how it's going to get harder and harder to interrupt people. He has got a website, post-interruptive society. Right? <laughs> so post-interruptive, right? Yep. And we were talking and my whole thing is, hey, that's a great idea. Influencers are gonna make a very big difference, but we have to think about different types of influencers. And obviously you've got celebrity influencers. Yep. You have expertise influencers, so people who are just experts. You have people who are followed because they're so deeply passionate about it. Right, right? About a topic. Uh, about yeah. a topic. Uh, I said, you've got those. But then you also have other kinds of influencers. And like another one that people, companies are underestimating, and it's part of what Marcel is going to basically do. For very large companies, the most important influencers are your employees. That's a good point. Right? And companies have 80, 50, 200, 300,000. And if I can't believe the employee of a company, I'll be, if, if yeah. right. and then obviously you've got your customers as influencers. So you have different ones. But the other is you want to see where you're going. So you might basically say, hey, some people are, I may get an idea from people who are influential and they actually could help me with the product and service. Yeah. But the way they speak and what they say could actually influence all my marketing. Because in effect, a, a really good influencer and I wrote this piece called Four Letter, Five Letter, Six Letter Word, which I shared with my colleague here. And this was actually an idea that I heard or thought that was shared for me by a gentleman called Mike Donahue, who used to work at the Poise at the ANA. And I said, hey, Mike, you just said these words. Can I build an article around it? Yeah. Obviously, attributing the thought to you. And he said, Rishal, there's a four letter, five letter, six letter word that is most important in the future, and you've nailed it, which is why people listen to you. So I said, what the hell are those four? He said, these four. Four letter is data. So he says, you're fact-based. You understand the importance of data, but you're fact-based. Number five is trust. People trust you. So the five-letter word is trust. Four-letter word is data. And six-letter word is intent. We know where you're coming from, right? You don't like, have like dubious interest. You, uh -huh. know, you want to do things to your client. You want to do things to your company. You won't hurt us, but you want to do things that benefit you, benefit the company and benefit the client. But we know that, so we know what your intent is. 
but your intent isn't to harm us. Your intent isn't to like, but I said, okay, that means that in my small influential world, that's, but I said, that's true for all influencers. Good influencers have data. Good influencers are trusted. Good influencers have intent, which basically means those behaviors tell you about influencers more than anything else does. So that's what some of those are the pillars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, and I would add, it's a buzzword, but it's so true is authenticity, right? I, one of the main things that I love hearing about influencers when I get the chance to work with them or recruit them into the business or just sit down and, you know, have a chat with them. Thing that always continues to surface is that none of them ever intended to become an influencer. No influencer, at least to any degree of real success. Yeah, you can buy 10,000 followers on Instagram and get your numbers up and start piddling around. But at the end of the day, all of these quote unquote influencers were discovered by accident. They created content, they did it at a certain capacity, and then one day they hit a tipping point where either a single piece of content or their, their entire library or everything they did from that day forward was impactful from a numbers perspective of scale and audience yep. and Absolutely. people. You know, you look at iJustine was a web designer in the middle of America and she put up videos on YouTube just to show her web design clients that she could also edit as a portfolio and then people started watching them. Everybody who was influential did so because of authenticity, yes. because they didn't try. They, right. they were just who they were. Yeah, and so basically a form of, sort of self-expression, mm-hmm. which people basically say, hey, we're learning from this, we want to go there. And that also limits, and also that means people have to sort of recognize at what stage do they jump the shark and start talking about stuff they know nothing about. <laughs> and those are one of the key things that some people will ask me, what do you think? I said, I have no clue. They said, what do you know about this? I said, this has got nothing to do with that. Which is, I don't know about that. If you want me to make wild guesses, I'll make wild guesses. I'm good at making wild guesses. And maybe everything I do is a wild guess, but those are definitely wild guesses. So Rashad, what are you most excited about uh, in the future at Hulasis? What is the next year? I think the, the single biggest thing that we are both excited and scared about <laughs> is we're in this, and it's an overused word, but we have been for the last three years transforming ourselves. And I was recently in Paris and I saw some of the work starting to do and some of the things that we think will sort of set us apart you know those are the fact that we've invested in companies like sapiens so we are understanding technology the fact that we are thinking increasingly open platform centric ways where clients own the data we work around our talent pool which is which is sort of uh, sort of unique we've started to do some unique and interesting things which are all coming together in a nice, well, we had six rare spices and now we know how to put the meal together. But we've also, for three years, been sweating in the kitchen. <laughs> so we're very excited about that. But we're also scared about the fact that we're doing this when a lot of our legacy businesses are under a lot of pressure, right. where clients are not growing and therefore they are putting a lot of pressure on us, yeah. whether it's in-house, etc. that we have to make sure that we get back or retain and grow their trust. To me, the single biggest challenge we have as a society, not just in our industry, as a society, is who do you trust? Sure. You know, that's why I use the word trust, which is people are saying, hey, I don't know if I trust government. I don't even know if I trust the Catholic Church and the Pope because of some of these things, right? Who do I trust? People are saying, I trust people like myself, and that could become very tribal. But the other is maybe I can trust my brand. Edelman says something called brand democracy, which is I'm going to work through my brands because at least I can make some impact. We're very excited about 
our journey in the transformation world that we think we're at the edge of breaking through on the other side, and therefore we will help our clients, and we've designed this all around our clients, we will help them. On the other hand, our clients are under so pressure, the world is working so fast, and we have so much competition, will we actually get there? So it's both excitement and a certain degree of fear. Well, it sounds like you've put a lot of thought and investment over the last three years into a successful outcome, and I'm betting that you guys will make it through. Thank so you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, but thank you very much. So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button or leave a comment or share this with somebody in your network. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much.